My name is Becca McNeil. I'm a journalist and generally curious person wondering what's next for the group of folks affectionately known as the church. With sex scandals, megachurch meltdowns, and Trumpy troubles, are people giving up on Christianity or are there things worth holding on to? This is my podcast where we gather doubters, searchers, question askers, and healers to consider what's working and what's not in the faith traditions we grew up with. The goal isn't to find a new right answer or a how-to. The goal is to foster openness and curiosity, whether you believe it's time to build something new or burn something down. In this first season, we talk a lot about parenting. What do we want our kids to take with them? What do we want them to leave behind? We examine the role of parents, many of whom are grappling with their own spiritual questions as they walk with their children into this new day. This is one of the episodes I'm more intimidated by because I've read your book and Aww. I'm like, oh my gosh, she's so smart. Don't be she's and I'm like, oh no, please. I'm the jokester <laughs> and the character. <laughs> well, and then, but okay. So you'll appreciate this. My husband's like, you're talking to all kinds of like activists and, and kind of intense people. What are you intimidated about? I'm like, no, the, she's so smart. She knows this stuff. She's a professor of Greek. That tells you so much about my view of authority <laughs> and like the conversation that we're going to have and why it's relevant to me personally. Gotcha. It's just like, no, because if she's like, well, actually in Greek, it means this. And I'm going to be like, oh, no. <laughs> and so with that, we know the tradition I'm coming from. Gotcha. <laughs> Okay, so with that, I am actually going to introduce you. This is okay. Reverend Dr. Angela N. Parker, Assistant Professor of New Testament and Greek at McAfee School of Theology at Mercer University. She has a PhD from the Chicago Theological Seminary in Bible, Culture, and Hermeneutics. Her two books are If God Still Breathes, Why Can't I? Black Lives Matter and Biblical Authority. That one's from Erdman. You're a fellow Erdmanite. I am also. Yes. And Bodies, Violence, and Emotion womanist study of the gospel of mark yes thank you for being here for having me i loved if god still breathes why can't i it's highlighted within an inch of its life <laughs> it's one of those where the highlights aren't super useful anymore right. <laughs> like, it's now yellow or green <laughs> yeah and you're kind of like so which were the bits that we should focus on here we highlighted the whole book so now it's marked up i'll show you with my little sloth. Love it. Little sloth thing. <laughs> Good mark. Is there anything else in your bio that you want to add? I kind of pulled from what I could find around town, but what else would you like to add to your bio? I think I would just add, I'm also an editor for another volume coming out entitled Bitter the Chastening Rod. And that is looking at Black Lives Matter and just Black biblical interpretation after in the past 30 years, so to speak. Awesome. So there are a lot of scholars out there who are just trying to figure out how we have these conversations about Bible in the age of Black Lives Matter, et cetera. And also wife, mother, grandmother, and- Grandmother. Yes, I know. Oh, I have two small grandchildren. It's fascinating to me. Okay, and is it true? Is being grandparent where it's at? My parents are like, oh, this is more better. <laughs> we like this a lot more than new parents. Oh, I think so. Because you don't necessarily feel the anxiety as much as you did with your own children. And um, I still feel the same anxiety. I probably still feel the same anxiety for my kids now than as when they were growing up. But I think the anxiety is slightly different now because you're really trying to think about what world are, am I leaving them? And yeah. that's the element of anxiety that I think I have yeah. as grandparent. But of course, I, they can have all the candy, all the cake, all the pie they want. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and that anxiety about the world you're leaving them, it's got to, mm -hmm. I mean, there's so many times I, as a parent, feel frustrated, not about the world I'm leaving them, but the world that I'm raising them in and how right. much of it just right. feels 
outside my control. Mm-hmm. It's even more for Black families because you've got to be wondering, yeah, is this ever going to change to the point that I don't need to worry about this extra layer for my kiddos? Right. And then that's the hard part because you as black parent are still having the conversation of, all right, if you're pulled over by the police, this is what you do. Keep your hands on the wheel. Don't make any sudden movements. Just you have to be near perfect. And I don't know if white children get that same talk that black children have to get. And how is it that black children and black young adults have to be near perfect, but police officers can be trigger happy. Yeah. or That makes no sense to me. Yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. what does it mean to actually have these difficult conversations as a nation or as a country when we don't even want to see what's happening in the first place? Right. We can't even agree on the facts, let alone the remedy. Exactly. Parents inherently want to protect their kids from derailing their lives. Right. I could have a a black parent and a white parent and say, okay, neither one of us want our kids to make a mistake and then pay for it forever. Right. And what a white parent is facing or what, what they, the context in which that is real for them is I don't want them to get suspended and not get into the school that they want. Right. Because, or mm-hmm. I don't want them to get accused of sexual assault and then not be able to be a Supreme Court justice. (laughs) But that's, I mean, that's the world in which we're, we're looking at actual things our kids are doing wrong Mm -hmm. and worrying about what that means for their future. And then I think it leads a lot of white parents to want to like not have consequences. Right. Versus within America, the world that, Black parents are trying to raise children. You're talking about being perfect in someone else's eyes. Right. Which you can never do. Right. It's an impossibility from Jump Street. Yes. Yeah. Like Mm -hmm. climbing out of this overperforming to stay safe. Mm -hmm. And then to get to do the things that your actions do merit. So like working an hour for a wage who gets to the end of that hour and can expect that nobody's going to find a way to disqualify you from your wage exactly mm-hmm. yeah that's it and it's also i think the very basic element especially for black parents is first of all i have to keep you alive and mm-hmm. i have to keep you alive in such a way that the way that i keep you alive also renders me as Black mother pathological. And I think that Black women are still dealing with the pathological identity that someone like um, Patrick Monahan put forth back in the Reagan years with the mm-hmm. idea of Black mothers being the ones who have just messed up Black community as well. And so we're still dealing with that mindset of Reaganomic welfare queen trickle down or taking welfare money where there's still this idea of pathological black motherhood. And so when mothers are simply trying to keep their children alive and the ways that we have to do it in order to keep them alive it's viewed as pathological because it's not the same thing that white families would have to do. I imagine you also bump in a lot to the, like the stereotype of the angry black woman. Yes. Mm-hmm. Like when I go march into the school and there's some mistake that's happened and mm-hmm. somehow my kid got a raw deal or whatever, and I'm wanting to correct that mistake, the response to an angry white woman and the response to an angry black woman are, are different. Are different, yes. Right. We all go into the the female hysteria. Mm-hmm. If we're dealing with the, with the male principle, there's a layer of that. But my power as a white woman is also in the room with me. Right. And it's the automatic, 
just thinking back to those days too, the automatic, oh, you don't know what you're talking about, Black mm. women. You probably don't have an education or you're probably this or that, or you are a, a welfare mom or whatever. And so it's that idea that walks into the room when a Black woman body walks into the mm-hmm. room. Yeah. Well, okay. So I'm going to try to segue this. I mean, we, I feel like I could, we could talk about that because I know you've got stories too. But <laughs> I want to talk about this for an hour. I also want to talk to you about your work, but I actually think that we're probably going to come back to a lot of what we just brought up as we talk about this. As people want to change this reality, as we want to acknowledge these systemic racism, as we want to talk about the forces that are working against Black bodies, one of the stumbling blocks that seems to come up, especially as we want to do that in the church and talk about the complicity of religion, the complicity of the church in bolstering Mm -hmm. white supremacy, we bump into the gatekeeper of biblical inerrancy. Yes. And this podcast is all about it's called a new day. It's about people who are wanting a new and better day. And one of the big frustrating things for these people who want a new day for faith, for Christianity, for spirituality, is that it bumps into these old interpretations of what the Bible must mean when it says authority, when it or when it grants authority, when it talks about what Jesus meant when he said X. And you take this head on in If God Still Breathes, Why Can't I? And I wanted to read one just early on in the introduction. And it says, white evangelicals bring so much of their own culture and personal lives to the Bible. There's no room for other engagement, such as Black Lives Matter, with the biblical text. In this way of thinking, there's only room for one particular life experience, a white life experience. And then you go on later to say, the question hinges for me on whether, as Bible readers, we are seeking authority or authoritarianism. Mm -hmm. And I wanted you to just ask you to say more about that stumbling block, how it got to be, why it's there, and how it's keeping us from the more, how that like seemingly academic almost stumbling block is actually really holding us up from the lived experiences that a lot of us really are craving from faith. Yes. I think I'm reminded of how, all right, former President Trump clears a park and gets a photo op with him holding an upside down Bible. And it's not necessarily the actual red passages of text that people engage and and think through heavily and, and heartily and have conversations with or dissect and tear apart in order to begin to think about what does this mean for my life today? I think it's the opposite. It's just the Bible as a conversation ender, not a conversation starter. And so what becomes authoritarian is the way that the Bible as a conversation ender actually is used to uphold a certain cultural ideal regarding family or marriage or complementarianism or how to raise children or how many children to have or to have a quiver movement where you have eight, nine, 10 children. It's this idea of, well, this is what is supposed to be. And that's the authoritarian ideal behind biblical text. And so what does it look like to actually think about the authority of the Bible in such a way that you have conversation with it instead of taking the cultural ideal that we live in today and planting it onto the biblical text. What I would actually argue for is if you actually take seriously the context in which the entire 66 books are being 
have been written in, you'll see that you have different contexts throughout the entirety of our biblical text. So if you take each context seriously, and when I'm talking about context, for example, in the Genesis narratives, you have to realize that in the Genesis narratives, you have folks who are writing about creation while they are probably still in captivity in Babylon, and they're arguing against a particular creation narrative that they find themselves living in. So when we read Genesis and we know that the folks who are writing Genesis are writing in a particular context, that's just arguing against the context that they're living in. Why do we think that we have to take that narrative and plop it on our ideal today without thinking through what's going on in Genesis or the background of Genesis? So it actually means taking seriously our text a little bit better and more, and I would argue more lovingly and with more passion for it. Because the thing is, I love the Bible. And so I'm not going to treat it nonchalantly. I'm actually going to take it seriously. And I think that we treat it nonchalantly and authoritarian by the ways that we implant or supplant our own cultural ideals onto it without actually mm-hmm. engaging with it. Yeah, it, it becomes this tool in our service for yes. what we want. For what we think we're always supposed to be doing. Because yeah. think about it. We talk about complementarian marriage. Where do you see it in other instances, perhaps besides the Genesis narrative? Even if you do see it, I don't if think you, you see, see it, it there. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah. No, it's well, I was listening to Bridget Eileen Rivera on a podcast talking about celibacy mm-hmm. and her coming to celibacy out of it. I forgot the word for it, but it's decentering the romantic ideal of as how this is what it means to be fruitful is mm-hmm. a partnered child producing monogamous marriage between a man right. and a woman. And she was talking about like how the Bible is a story driven by polygamists and single people. Mm -hmm. Somehow we've decided that it can't go further from here unless we are not just married, but married and both fulfilling these extremely rigid roles. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I love what you're saying though, about loving the Bible and taking it seriously. And in the world that you work in, I think there's a lot of people who would say that they do. I, in your book, you call it John MacArthur, and that's pretty much when you won my heart. <laughs> we <laughs> to the Master's College. I attended his church, and we wow. spent. I remember him spending an entire sermon on a particular preposition or infinitive phrase mm-hmm. in First John or something like that. <laughs> that's fascinating. I was teaching infinitival phrases today in my Greek class. <laughs> yes. Well, in his giant church, so many people, we had a whole sermon. And of course, it ended with some very specific cultural imperative to straighten up and fly right. But you call out that kind of, well, this is it. This is the one interpretation of what this text can mean. And we've got it now. So, And it conveniently always supports what is what serves that pastor well. Mm-hmm. It amazingly always somehow supports more people coming to their churches and giving of their time and talent for free. Yes. It supports a specific vision of the family. It supports mm-hmm. submission to your pastor. It <laughs> amazingly always seems to work out so well for them. For them, right. Yeah. And What happens is that if you ever want to challenge that, you're told you have a low view of scripture or you're not respecting the authority of scripture. This is white people 101. We see ourselves as neutral most of the time. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm not a white woman. I'm a journalist. Right. Mm -hmm. I'm not like a racialized presence. And therefore, I can turn off my cultural beingness and disembody and just be a brain who interacts with this text. Mm-hmm. And I think that's been kind of valorized by the enlightenment, by all that. Yes. But what you're arguing for is that's not the full experience. That's not a full love of the text. 
right? Or even an acknowledgement of your own particular identity. Yeah, you and the text mm-hmm. are now both not in your fullness. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's what I'm trying to get to because think about how someone like a John MacArthur just leads and he leads in such a way that he is the authority of the Bible as well. And it's from that particular white male standpoint that has set itself up as the authority over all things on the globe. Yeah. And how do you actually take seriously that identity if it doesn't take itself seriously in such a way to actually name it and identify it and to say, oh, I'm a cishet white man who has been at the top of the privilege line for a very long time. And I, yes. (laughs) And so I may not be reading the text in the way of a dis disempowered woman of color from sub-Sahara Africa who actually would read biblical texts differently and not from my particular viewpoint. So that means that you have to wrestle with what does my white male standpoint, how does my white male standpoint differ from the sub-Saharan African woman? And why would it be different? What makes it different? And when they don't even begin to do, that's a problem because you're not taking your own identity seriously and you're implanting your identity on everyone else's reading of the text without necessarily saying that, without saying that at all. Well, and hiding it. And it makes me think of in post-colonial theory, the idea of interrogating whiteness, like Mm -hmm. turning the lens, turning the gaze around onto whiteness and saying, we need to figure out what this thing is because Mm -hmm. it's very cagey about what it is. And it also, there's this kind of thread within white male biblical scholarship of saying, okay, fine, let's get contextual. Let's look at what this would have meant in the ancient Near East. Mm -hmm. Like we're going to get more literal rather than saying, okay, yes, the person reading is bringing something to this and the text is speaking out of a place and and saying that makes it more um, of a conversation the impulse the knee-jerk impulse of what has to be inerrant leads them to say okay fine let's get historical let's look (laughs) at what does this literally mean in an ancient near eastern context to an ancient near eastern person and we're going to essentialize that rather than taking and this is what i love Jacqueline Grant's work kind of blew mm-hmm. my mind, and especially coming from, I mean, I grew up in the PCA, I went to the master's college, mm-hmm. and then I read Jacqueline Grant, and I'm just like, I'm fully destabilized um, in the best way. She her, she makes that argument for not looking at the person of Christ, but the work of Christ. Yeah, right. And so instead of looking at the most literal interpretation we could find, saying, okay, what's the interplay here? What's the Mm -hmm. interplay between where they were and where they were headed? Because what it means in this context is more of a theme or a motif. And so you get liberation as a theme. Mm -hmm. And that's something I have since then, since reading her work. Yes. And and some others, yours as well. Thinking more about the Bible as setting us on a path almost or like Mm -hmm. setting some themes i've been envisioning it i'm super metaphorical thinker as like god setting up a quarter on its edge and flicking it and it spins yes in the sense of okay we've set a rhythm and one of my favorite rhythms Mm. to think about contemplatively is die and rise what is die and rise to look right like right Mm -hmm. now Mm -hmm. liberation in this context the idea is liberation. And so where what does that bring you now? If I'm living in the idea of it and what it was in that time, I can contextualize it so much more effectively in my time. If I'm just doing that work rather than a, well, head coverings. Right, <laughs> right. Head coverings. Mm-hmm. Or... Jesus said, if your ox is in the ditch, okay, what does that literally mean? 
And nobody is saying, I don't think, well, I don't have an ox, I don't have a ditch, so I guess I'm never get, never working the Sabbath. Mm-hmm. But they take a very, rather than Jesus, the motif of Jesus saying, like, the law is for man, not man for the law. Right. And being able to apply that theme, that motif, that direction to their current situation. It's a very, these are the new rules. Right, exactly. And what is just wonderful about Jacqueline Goldsby Grant's work is she's looking at the person of Jesus and beginning to argue that, oh, as a Black woman, I don't need a super high Christological Jesus. I need a Jesus that's going to walk with me on the way. Mm. So as womanists, we often liken this journey to how are we all walking freedom's trail? And so if you're walking freedom's trail as a womanist, you're not walking freedom's trail by yourself. You're walking Freedom's Trail and you're bringing mama, daddy, uncle, auntie, cousin, sister, brother. Because if I get free and nobody else gets free, I'm not walking in the Jesus way. So you look at the text, you look at the biblical text and you see how Jesus is walking along the way towards death. And you ask yourself, all right, how am I walking along the way with other people towards death? And the interesting thing is when you look at Acts of the Apostles, they never called themselves Christians. Other people called them Christians as a derogatory statement. Mm -hmm. They identified themselves as people of the way. So again, how do you walk on the way with one another on this freedom trail to actually get somewhere when we die? And how do we actually walk along the way that we act as a bomb and a soothing for one another as we're walking on the way instead of saying, oh, you're doing that wrong. Oh, you're doing that wrong. Instead of that rule-based idea that we have about Jesus as completely creedal and believing statements. How do we actually walk with Jesus along the way as we walk with others? I think that's the womanist way that we're trying to get to. And so the other piece of that is I walk along the way and I have the conversations with my white male colleague friends who also have to recognize that they need redemption too. Because I think the part of this that is difficult, especially for a John MacArthur type, is they never need any redemption. They already have it all right and have all the power and all the authority. They're the new Jesus. All the power and authority is given into my hand. The mind is the kingdom. Of the- yes. <laughs> and so you have to say, oh, you need redemption from that idea as well. And so... What does it actually look like to be a person who can say, I don't have it all, I don't know it all, but I'm trying to walk with people along the way together on this freedom trail so that we all arrive somewhere together. And I think you see that where a lot of expressions of Christianity have become really dissatisfying is like the taking of the Beatitudes and spiritualizing them to the point that they can be relevant to a white man who doesn't feel need. Mm-hmm. It gets so spiritualized that it's boring. Yes. It, you have people snoozing up. Whereas if you hear someone preach the Beatitudes from a, probably a womanist perspective, like a social expression, mm-hmm. a communal expression, a societal expression. Right. It's anything but dry. It's, it's radical and it's fascinating. Whereas when I hear an over-spiritualized version of all of this, when we're so concerned with, oh, well, this must relate to sin and the bondage mm-hmm. of sin. Mm-hmm. I'm like, that cannot be the most interesting and relevant form of bondage we can talk about today. Right. <laughs> well, mean- that's what we do. We hyper-spiritualize and we decontextualize. And Mm -hmm. that's why in the beginning I'm talking about context so that we don't fall into that trap of Mm hyper-spiritualization that takes the bite out of the text. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. You know, part of it is avoiding 
feeling the bite ourselves. Because I think one of the unfortunate truths for white folks is that we might identify with Egypt more than the Israelites at times. Mm -hmm. And in the stories, the oppressor can't be the good guy. Right. (laughs) So there's some repentance and that repentance can't just be spiritual. You can't keep doing the bad thing and then repent of your pride (laughs) Um, (laughs) and then just keep right on. And that's some of the resistance, I think, to Black Lives Matter and recent efforts in the black community is that it's asking for more than a hug it's asking for more than a i repent of my individual bias exactly you see a lot of white people being willing to say okay i'll do anti-bias training but when you Mm -hmm. start talking about okay let's reshape the structure of your organization Right. Let's look mm-hmm. at progressive tax structures. Let's mm-hmm. look at the nuts and bolts. People start to get, well, no, hold on. We have some. <laughs> now we suddenly have reservations. Like I'll get around mm-hmm. the fire and I'll cry with you, but I'm not going to pay more taxes or whatever. Or the even begin to think about systemic change or systemic mm-hmm. transformation. Mm-hmm. Because I think one thing that people do not realize is that not only can you have individual sin, but you can have systemic sin. And the people who are in charge of institutions and hierarchies that keep systemic sin in place, that is another form of sin. So you have to think about, oh, I just can't think about my own individual sin, but how am I participating in a system that is systemically sinful against varieties of groups of people. And so you have to have the conversation about what a progressive tax structure looks like, because if you're still stealing from the least of these in the nation, that is sin against the least of these in the nation. So how Mm -hmm. do you begin to think about changing the structure? And so when we talk about Jesus dying on a cross, we have to say Jesus died on a Roman imperial cross which was an empire that was raping the land, raping the women, taking excessive amounts of taxes from the people so that they did not have the ability to take care of their children or the ability to grow enough in order to feed themselves. And so you had revolts because people were not able to live. So you can see that the system needed changing as well. So Jesus did not just die just for our own individual sins. He also died because he was up against a system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, and the significance want? of dying on that. I'm fascinated with the idea of dying to things mm-hmm. as part of the dying. And like he says, take up your cross. Like yes. in some ways, like creating that picture of mm-hmm. empire and death, like the road leading <laughs> this inevitable thing. And then what does it look, what does it mean to rise? And I think there's some good arguments out there that people in power right now need to be thinking about, yes, there is a death required of me here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is the Jesus way. It is the way to an imperial mm-hmm. death and a rising to a very different kind of upside down kingdom or flattened hierarchy or however people are saying it. That the he what he says the kingdom of God is here. It is something that is on the other side of the, his resurrection, right. and it is different. Yes, and different is scary when that when present is working out really well for you. Right, but present is only working out well for some. Right, exactly. And that's the problem because we would rather turn a blind eye to who it's not working out for. Well, or so find a way to blame them. To say, yes. look, mm-hmm. this is open to all. So, and mm-hmm. that's what gets back to our first conversation about pathologizing Black mothers. Exactly. I can't be blamed for the prison population. Mm-hmm. I need to find somebody else. I think Isabella Wilkerson gets into like scapegoating. Yes. yes. That's a, it's just a sinister or insidious. That's what I was thinking. Like the insidious potholes beneath this like kind of calm, like family values, 
virtues and things mm-hmm. that look is this like the ways we've made that completely impossible right and then blame people when they go under mm-hmm. exactly for some reason james dobson focus on the family came to my brain <laughs> because it is it's the family values that again erupted around the 70s 80s time period after the civil rights movement too so mm-hmm. you have to think about how contextually and historically all these uprisings and different like strongholds occur within our cultural thought and identities and what that means for victim blaming in the 70s and 80s and you talk about the war on drugs so oh, yeah. you have to Think about all these contexts and all these different historical uprisings that are in response to folks wanting their civil rights. Or you can even begin to think about it in today's day and age when we talk about Black Lives Matter movement and its connection to civil rights movements, but its connection to can't we just live? And what's coming up now about book banning, or not having people be uncomfortable because they have to learn the civil rights history in order to understand how Black Lives Movement comes about because of the ways that the 1965 Voting Rights Act has been dismantled in 2013 by Justice Alito. And so now different states can redline again, not redline, gerrymander. And so- If you don't know any of that history, and if you refuse to teach your children any of that history, then you just allow the same things to happen over and over again. And then you're wondering, why are Black folk protesting? Because we've had to, Black history, and it is February 3rd, Black (laughs) history is American history. Absolutely. And so don't make it sound like you don't want your children to learn that history because it's not American history. It actually is American history and would stop a lot of the the blindness to the systems that still perpetuate injustices against people. So again, I think it's going back to that systemic sin that folks are thinking, oh, I'm still fighting against these systemic sin and oppressions that would keep me in a box or put me in my place or relegate me to second class citizenship. Yeah. Well, and it, I think it does, it creates a whole new round of work with each generation because we are Mm -hmm. not building generational knowledge. How did I get to 20 years old and have to look around and be like, oh, hold on a second here. There was so much that started making sense about history to me once I put a framework of racial capital on it. Mm -hmm. And I fought it, of course, but it, it just... It made a bunch of dissonant things that seemed random look really predictable. Mm -hmm. I was thinking of Carol Anderson's White Rage. Mm -hmm. Yes. mm -hmm. About that. Exactly what you're talking about. The like progress, backlash, progress, backlash. Yes. And you just kind of think, okay. And I had one of my sources for a story on Christian schools confronting their racist origins. One of my sources for that wrote me at the end of the summer of 2020 and it was mm-hmm. like i'm feeling the white lash right and he kind of defined what he meant by that and it was it as a white person who's far from the shaking center of it and mm-hmm. i wasn't i was still in that kind of well maybe some of this stuff was i don't know it's really everywhere and i think a lot of black folks were just like We'll see how long. And then you see it. Right. The CRT stuff. You have a year where Nicole Hannah-Jones can publish 1619 Project. Yes. And then you have the year it gets banned from everywhere. Exactly. There was a lot of, like, advice to young folks about do not do not be unready for this. Like, be hopeful, whatever, but don't let this take the wind out of your sails because... We, if this is, if the backlash took the wind out of your sails, we would never get anywhere. As a womanist, though, I have to say that I, as long as I have breath in my body, I still fight. (laughs) And so 
even if the wind is taken out a little bit of the sails, I'm still. I'll <laughs> be the wind. Yes. <laughs> Pedal harder. Pedal harder. Exactly. Because yeah. I'm still here. And so there's, there is still work to be done. Mm-hmm. And I often tell my students and I tell myself, okay, tap out when you have to tap out and then tap somebody else in while you're tapping out and resting. Yeah. And then tap back in for the work because you can't constantly do this work without tapping out and resting. Right. You just have to. Yeah. Yeah. I want to think about raising this next generation as you were talking about the womanist, the womanist way Mm -hmm. walking and bringing everybody. I thought, what is, what a different idea that would be if we saw ourselves as walking along that way with our children. Mm-hmm. And you talked about the difference between that and everybody needs mm-hmm. to shape up and fly right. And I just, I would love to hear your reflections on what that would look like as parents, okay. like womanist yeah. parenting. Mm-hmm. Well, one thing I think I'm learning over the years is that womanist parenting allows a faith development that recognizes each and every person is going to walk and develop in their faith differently. So each and every child will walk and develop in their faith differently. And part of what a womanist parent would do is to talk to their child about their own faith development, their own uncertainties, their own moments of faith crisis, their own moments of I just don't understand, nor can I understand all the mysteries of God. And if we were able to walk together in such a way that was open and honest about not knowing everything and about not understanding all the mysteries of God, that would actually allow our children to walk and grow in such a way that is not the air of, okay, I am certain of this, and this is how I have to behave in this. And then if I don't behave in this manner, oh my goodness, will mom and dad still love me? Will God still love me? And that's the other hard part of this, because if we implant this idea in our children of, oh, if you come out as LGBTIQ+, then God doesn't love you, and you're going straight to hell, that's not the womanist parenting way of how you walk your own faith journey. My heart right now with all of the book banning has been with a lot of the kids who are being told by their communities that their life stories are unacceptable. Mm-hmm. So when you say that, I just, and honestly, I think I see in Christianity, even people who are trying to say, okay, so racism is not in the Bible, so we shouldn't be racist, but then aren't willing to say, okay, hold on. If we remove, if we actually change not our, what do we think the Bible authoritatively and certainly says about race and actually change our way of walking with it and conversing with it, mm-hmm. it's going to change a few more things. Right. It's not just going to be like, oh, we have this authoritarian whatever, but also racism is bad. (laughs) As I'm pondering and thinking about racism or even what I would call ethnocentricity as well, Mm -hmm. because you have to read your biblical text and also see that there are different ethnic groups around. And so ethnocentricity actually pops up in our biblical text from time to time. You can say that racism is a modern concept, so we may not necessarily see it in its contemporary forms in our biblical text, but we can definitely see ethnocentrism pop up in our biblical text and then nuance the conversation about how we deal with our own ethnocentric natures. Mm -hmm. I think the same conversation can be had for sexuality in the biblical text, that We don't have, homosexuality is a modern concept that is not in our biblical text. So when you see same-sex thing or descriptions happening in biblical text, how is the biblical text talking about it? 
And how do we then nuance the conversations for today's day and age? Well, when you're talking about just how to live an anti-racist life or how to live a fully sexualized embodied life, you have to have conversations that do not do what we've been doing, just taking our ideal and supplanting it onto the biblical text. And so what does it actually look like to have these open, honest conversations about the text is not saying all homosexuals are going to hell. That's just horrible. Don't say that. (laughs) But how do you actually walk in such a way again that God wants us all to be in community, that God wants us all to love? And you know that God wants us all to have the capacity to love and be loved. So what does that look like as we walk this faith journey with one another that actually allows the varying identities that we see today to actually live in their varying identities. Yeah. Yes. And to feel as though they belong with the other people who are walking along. Exactly. Not that they're off like, fine, go walk your own little journey over there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You actually belong to us and we're going to keep you company and give you dinner. Like you belong with us. You're loved and beloved. today with Asa. Asa, thanks for being here. Time to tell jokes. All right. Oh, first, no only jokes this time, okay? Only jokes? Yeah. Are they all going to be poop jokes though? No. Okay. Well, I have a quick question for you though. What? How old are you? 50,000. You're 50,000? Yes. Man, you look great for being 50,000. You must have seen a lot of things. Yes. Does that mean you were alive when there was dinosaurs? further back than that? Yeah, way further. Way further back. Okay, sorry, I don't know much about dinosaurs. All right, you ready to tell us some jokes? Okay. What is Moira plus green and hairy equals? What is Moira plus green and hairy equal? You tell me. Yes. A monster. Nope. Grinch. The Grinch. Is Moira your sister? She's a Grinch. I know, but who is Moira? My listeners don't know who Moira is. My sister. How old is she? 50,101. Oh, okay. You want to tell us another joke? What's Moira plus cushion? Moira plus cushion. What is it? Moira cushion head. What does a Moira cushion head do? He just runs around bumping into things. All right, buddy. We better sign off. Can you want to tell everybody goodbye? Goodbye. One of the things, another thing I loved in your book, another <laughs> little sloth post-it here, Thank you. is what would our faith communities look like if we fully embraced an idea of biblical authority that lives and breathes in such a movement? What, or if we embraced the need for an abiding sense of connection to what has happened in the past while having continued conversation with our present and imagining what future conversations could entail? Yes. You talk about being, we grew up, most of us being preached to, and many mm-hmm. of us are still being preached to, and how that keeps us young and keeps us kind of infantilized. And so I think a lot of parents are suddenly overwhelmed because they're like, okay, I have to go get an answer and I have to like basically just create a new authority that's more open-minded and anti-racist. And I have to... Mm-hmm be a better version of the person who's been preaching to me. And you're saying, what would this look like if it were a conversation? I'd love to just hear you expound on that with the idea of growing with our children. Right. Well, I think there are three things or at least three identities that I'm thinking about when I have this conversation. I'm thinking about the pastoral level. So the folks who are actually the senior pastors in churches who are preaching over people. And then thinking about the parent who is in that church and hearing the pastor preach over them. And then the parent who reinforces what the pastor has preached over the parent unto the child. I I think I would argue that 
pastors, and this is because what I do is seminary based and I'm training pastors. Right. I think about training pastors to not be that pastoral authoritarian figure over a congregation that if our pastors actually lived in such a way that they were able to admit they don't know everything and not everything is as ironclad certain as it was, that attitude or understanding would then be implanted in the parents who would be able to implant the same idea into the children that we don't all know everything. We don't all have certainty about every faith creed that we just rattle off of our tongues. And so as we're walking with our children in this manner, I think that they're... It's not necessarily about the parent getting the right book or the right training or the right this or the right that. It's about how do you actually walk with your children in such a way that you love them no matter what, and you try to model what you would imagine Jesus would model as Jesus walked along the way with people. I'm reminded of the Gospel of Mark because I love the Gospel of Mark, but <laughs> In in Mark's gospel, you have the disciples who are walking with Jesus along the way. And in that chapter eight through chapter 10, two chapters of walking, they see a blind man at the beginning and they see a blind man at the end. And the blind man at the end, when Jesus says to him, bring him to me so that I can touch him and heal him, that man walks with Jesus along the way as well. So he's a man who actually was on the side of the road by himself, didn't have any help. And then Jesus says, come with me. He heals him. And they're all now walking along the way together. That's the way that I would hope parents would walk with their children as well. Of, I, I know sometimes you stumble. Sometimes I stumble. Sometimes you fall. Sometimes you have to take a rest along the way. And I'm going to sit with you along the way as well until we can get back up and continue walking along the way together. It's almost as if I'm trying to say that there has to be some type of mutuality between pastor, parent, child that actually allows all of us to be the vulnerable inner child that we still all have because we still all have that inner child that just wants to be loved and held no matter what. Oh, that's what Jesus does. A friend of mine, my friend Catherine is a therapist and she has introduced Mm -hmm. our little friend group to internal family systems, Mm -hmm. which is all about that inner child and loving (laughs) inner child. Yes. And so what you're saying, the visual to me is so striking because you're saying it paints such a beautiful picture of what we want that journey to look like. You want mm-hmm. the freedom to sit down if you need to. You want the little kids who want to be who need to be carried every mm-hmm. now and then, mm-hmm. and who sometimes want to run and explore. And if you're my children, get find some cactus to get into. <laughs> I'm just thinking yes. of all the paths that we have walked, mm-hmm. and what that path as a family inevitably looks like, and how. It is not a steady single file march with me at the front, left, right. That's not a joyful, mutual family walk where everyone feels like this is my walk too. That's Mm -hmm. mom's walk or I really love it. And I'm wondering, one of the things that I'm, I posit kind of in my book and I've heard teased at. And I think it needs to be very carefully explained so that it's not, it doesn't get taken the wrong way, but that in some sense to get to all of the justice that we've kind of been discussing Mm -hmm. because of those internal children that we have, because of the way that so many of us were raised with the wounds that we have and the way that we interact and knowing that when you are up against even a John MacArthur, there is an inner child in there fighting back and terrified to be wrong that addressing the inherent perfectionism of our culture and that that is reinforced by capitalism that is played out through race 
Right. And all of those things are used to shape what perfectionism looks like. But at, at its heart, what it is, the, I, in my book, I use the metaphor of an icy mountain that we're trying mm -hmm. to drive up on an icy route. The mountain is perfectionism. Wow. And the way you climb it is you get in your little car of your little life and you try to just white knuckle it up the mountain. There's always somebody ahead of you, no matter how high up. Mm -hmm. and the, the whole goal of the mountain is not to reach the top. It's just to keep us all on there. Wow. Afraid of the people behind us, mm -hmm. envying the people ahead of us performing. Right. Mm -hmm. And as long as those cars keep going, money keeps being made, power keeps held. It, it maintains the system of the, the perfectionist mountain. And so the theory that I kind of mess with that's germane to parents is that addressing the perfectionism is going to put you a long way toward being able to work toward justice mm. or be affirming, be, you know, queer affirming, that really trying to get there without addressing the perfectionism makes you kind of a liability in the space. Right. No, that makes sense. It makes sense because thinking back to, again, a 1950s model of the family where the mother is wearing the perfect apron and cooking the perfect dinner and the husband comes home right at five o'clock and the children have already been home from school, completed their homework and are waiting for dad to get in. And it's the perfect scenario. I think we have to problematize the perfection and rethink perfection to think not perfect, but complete. Mm. What does a complete life look like? So at the end of this, at the end of this life, do you want to look back and ask, was it perfect or did I complete what needed to be completed? And allowing the messiness of children, allowing the jam to smear across the face and to see the toothless, toothless grin of a child. That's the completion to me. To not white knuckle it up the road, but to actually be the person who completes the journey of mutuality that you hope your children experience when they were in your presence. And I'm going back to Matthew chapter five, and I want to say around 37, where oftentimes in that Sermon on the Mount text, the translators say, be ye perfect just as your heavenly father is perfect. And that Greek word, here we go. We got one Greek word today. <laughs> I was like, I'm not if we don't get to at least one. At least one. Yes. That one Greek word is teleos, essentially spelled T-E-L-E-I-O-S. Be ye perfect is the translation, but it also has the connotation of being complete and completing your task. So the idea of perfection that we've placed upon ourselves if we're reading that text and that text alone is actually a, a, the wrong, I would argue the wrong ideal. Okay. It's the, no, did I complete the task that God has placed in my hands? Did I do it boldly? Did mm -hmm. I laugh heartily with my children? Did we go into the car? No, this is me talking about me and my children. <laughs> did we get into the car and get lost all the time and not know the right way? Because yeah. of course, mom has a great sense of direction. Sometimes I don't she need does, to check the map. Right. <laughs> but then find a place that you didn't know you would stumble upon and have a great ice cream shake. Just mm -hmm. that's the completion. So, how do we actually live in the ability to be imperfect, but to be complete? I just want you to like. Do a whole riff on Telios now. Like <laughs> the words that are coming to my mind are like fullness, wholeness, yes. complete. That is a very or different than mature as well, because that's the whole point of this as well. It's that idea of mature faith. That mature faith of I don't know everything certainly, but I know that I'm on this path with God and with my community. And that's the maturing faith that we're hoping for. Yeah. That's beautiful. It's beautiful. And 
with that, and I think you talk about this in your book, the authority of the spirit mm-hmm. to, to, I think there's a, the big fear that folks like John MacArthur have, man, we are, I'm going to hear it from the John MacArthur fans, all of whom I went to college with. But the fear of the John MacArthur crowd is that if we relinquish the authority of the static word, anything goes. That, I mean, the good faith fear. There's tons of bad Mm -hmm. faith fears. There's a lot of things they're afraid of that they're saying. But there is, I think, among some, a good faith fear that I won't know what's right or wrong. We won't, anything will go. We'll be totally led astray if we don't have this absolute to go back to. And I, what I've heard proponents of an inspiration or not a, that view of the Bible saying is that along with the high view of scripture, a high view of the Holy Spirit is kind of necessary. And fortunately, something that should be part of our Christian life. Yes. <laughs> and I, I remember even in college thinking, like, we just don't believe in the Holy Spirit, I don't think. Mm, wow. Like we, yeah. We think we, with our brains, need to do that job. And it made us hostile, I think. Uh, my college experience was extremely hostile. And mm. because it was a, everything was a threat, debate, argument. There was not like the, you didn't know there was no work happening that you couldn't see. You had to do it. Wow. You know, the Holy Spirit wasn't really a character because we were interpreting God's word. That's where the instructions came from. That's how we knew what, how to live. And so I think some of that fear that if we let go of our current view of the Bible in its literal inerrancy, I think it tattletales on us and shows our low view of the Holy Spirit. I would say that the play on words for the book, If God Still Breathes, Why Can't I? It's coming from, and I mentioned it in the introduction, it's coming from that second Timothy passage where all scripture is God breathed or given by inspiration of God. It's that theopanoustis language, second Greek word. So when you think about theopanoustis, it's the idea of God inspired or literally God breathed. And if you take God's breath seriously, now I'm going back to Genesis and God breathed into Ha-Adam and Ha-Adam becomes a living creature. God's breath, God's spirit, breathing in and out of us, giving us mouth-to-mouth resuscitation is supposed to enliven our spirits. So that means that in addition to the head knowledge, you should have that spiritual oomph that makes you move and do and build and grow and just do all the things that you didn't think you had any kind of capacity to do because that's God's creative breath breathing into us. And that, if you take the spirit seriously, you're looking for that breath every moment of every day. It's not just the head knowledge. It is. And I think one of the one of the aspects that's often hard to impart as a professor is because I'm often so in into the head knowledge that when spirit moves and I have to stop and say, okay, y'all feel that? And to feel the shift in a room and to be a spirit-filled enough professor to feel the shift in the room and to recognize it and to speak it and to say that's what just happened. That's part of this experience as well. Now I just want to take your class. (laughs) All right. I've resisted learning Greek for a very long time. It might be time to do it. (laughs) Oh, it's wonderful though. That's the thing. I think that's part of the mystery of God too. The mystery of you don't know exactly when or will the wind will blow. Thinking Johannine scripture. That you just don't know. And then it happens. You're like, oh. Yes. 
And that's what you want. Yes. And it's, mm-hmm. it is it, like, what a beautiful vision for life. Yes. I'm feeling very, see, I came into this conversation feeling very intimidated that my head knowledge wasn't <laughs> going to be enough and that I wasn't going to be able to keep up. Oh, you know, I feel like refreshed and my heart feels expanded. Thank I appreciate you. that though. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate you. I appreciate just your willingness to kind of go here and there and wander around with me in this topic. And yeah, it's been challenging for me because I'm thinking the bigness of it is feels big and challenging, but also with the energy, the wind in the sails, yes, like trusting that it's going to be there. And that's, I would hope that for every parent, because it is so exhausting. Just even the, the nuts and bolts of parenting, especially with young children, like, being on time and changing diapers, if that's the only thing you do in a day. <laughs> but to have that purposefulness and that inspiration and that encouragement makes it so much better. I hope that people have received that good word here. And I want to thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. And I do, I echo that. I do hope that parents hear that good word as well and feel that refreshment as they continue on in the journey, the important journey of parenting and just implanting into the small humans the ability to begin to think about what does it look like to walk along the way. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening today. I hope you were encouraged, challenged, or something in between. If you didn't find the answers you'd hoped for, my goal is that at least you might have felt like someone else was asking the questions you're asking. Please share the podcast with your friends and check the show notes for more information about my guest. And of course, thanks to my sponsors, Moira and Asa, for supporting the podcast with their humor, and Lewis, my husband, for running to get my power cord every time I forgot it downstairs. Music is by Andy Slatter, Pink Zebra, and Color Film Music. Thanks for being patient with my little in-house production. I know there are a lot of sound and editing imperfections. I'm learning as I go. So thanks for hanging in there. Have a great new day.